study in Colossians. Next week, we finish the book of Colossians in our study. Paul's motive and message that he wanted the Colossian church to understand is that there is nothing more needed in their lives than Jesus. God's message through Paul has been since the beginning of what we've studied is that Jesus is supreme and Jesus is sufficient. And today in our passage, Paul continues to zero in on this message and he talks about it in context of relationships. Three specific areas of relationships that we'll look at. So the, the title of the message this morning is Relationships, the Jesus Way. But before we go any further in the message, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for what we've already got to experience in worship, in song, rehearsing your truth. We thank you for the fellowship and encouragement that we have. Yeah, we thank you for celebrating what you're doing in Keith and Elizabeth's life. And now, God, we come to the part of the message or the service where we open your word to hear a message from you. And God, I pray that, as Scripture says, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see. God, we pray that you would illuminate your word, that you would enlighten us by your word, that your spirit would convict us and show us and remind us that we are empowered by your spirit to do what you call us to do. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or behind you, beside you, that they would hear from the Lord this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been looking at Colossians, chapters 1 and 2 of Colossians has really been more of a doctrinal or a theological um, a teaching from Paul about who Jesus is. And now in chapters 3 and 4, he has switched his mode into not only uh, the theological, but actual the behavior. That if we have faith in Jesus, then our lives needs to result in behaviors that honor Jesus. And so faith in Jesus needs to result in behavior that honors Jesus. That's Paul's point in this, that he says that the truth of Jesus' message, the truth of his completed work, will play itself out in our attitudes, our actions, and our behaviors. And in this particular text this morning, the true test of our relationship with Christ is how we relate to others. He addresses husbands, wives, children, parents, masters, and servants, or employers and employees. He basically says to the congregation at Colossae and to us, if Jesus is supreme in your life, then it should show in how you relate to the members of your family and in your workplace. Our attitude is to please, please him, whether we're husbands or wives, kids, parents, employers, employees. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the third chapter of Colossians. We're going to start at verse 18. And while you're going there, I want to make a few observational statements. That these statements will be kind of the lens we look through at this passage. <clears throat> the first is this, is that our faith needs to be expressed in our homes. Sometimes we can compartmentalize saying, well, I'm a believer over here and I'll live this way over here. And then when we get home, it's like, whew. I ain't gotta be who I want to be now. But the fact is, is that the Christian life that we are called to live is to be modeled in our homes as much as anywhere else. 
If Jesus is supreme in our life, then it should show in how we relate to the members of our family. The second observation I want us to look to is this. Is that Paul's primary teaching focus is in function, not inferiority. Meaning that this is not a teaching on who is good and who is bad, who is better and who is worse. It is a teaching on that all of us are the same at the foot of the cross. But it's a matter of function, divine order. The third thing is this, is that relationships are meant to be mutual. There's a give and take. There's a reciprocal. There's a shared thing that happens. All commands of God have to do with relationships. And in this text, it's about the relationship of husbands and wife, parents and kids, employers, employees. You can't talk about the responsibilities of the husband without thinking about the wife or the parent without the kid. And so they're connected. And the most obvious observation that we can talk about is that families need help today. I, I could give you a, a list of statistics to prove my point, but I think we all agree that the families need to focus on Jesus. And one of the greatest things we can do as individuals is to help grow in our homes a godly foundation. Now, one final observation as we go through this passage is this, is that people, the, the people that are being addressed were believers. It seems clear that the people being addressed were believers since Paul appealed to the church. And with that being said, let me ask you this. Can we expect non-Christians to think and behave like Christians? Why? Because they don't have the knowledge and power to do so. But let me ask you this. Can we expect Christians, followers and disciples of Jesus, to think and behave like Christians? Why? Because we have been given the knowledge and power to do so. That's the backdrop of Paul's teaching. You Colossians, you follower of Jesus, you are to act different even in your marriages, your parenting, and when you go to work. With these observations in mind, let's go to Colossians chapter 3 and look at verse 18 and 19. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. God's guidelines for marriage, love, and submission. Now, what a great verse to start a message. Wives, be subject to your husbands. What do you think that means? What do you think it means that the last part of that verse says, as fitting in the Lord? Now, husbands, just to get a feel and an understanding of this, let's put ourselves in the wives' shoes. And what if it said, husbands, be subject to your wives? What does it mean? What are we talking about? If not read carefully... The NASB, which we just read, makes it sound like the wife's sole purpose for being on the planet is to be subject or be treated like property for the benefit of the man. But that's not what the meaning is at all. Let me assure you of that. So before all you husbands start writing out Colossians 3.18 and putting it on people's mirrors and steering wheels, <laughs> let's unpack it a little bit more. The Bible views marriage as a partnership, with each partner filling a role within the, uh, within the relationship. The Bible talks about marriage in the context of being a picture 
of the believer and Christ. The church is called the bride of Christ. In essence, if you will, we are married to Jesus. And so our understanding of marriage is a picture of that marriage that we have with Jesus. And the couple that is following after Jesus keeps in mind that their marriage is to be that picture, not only for their benefit, but for a picture of for in the world. Now remember the context of Paul's letter. The gospel had radically changed everything, particularly for women and children. Women had uh, over and over been treated as property, as a possession. And Jesus comes along and says, you are valuable because of the gospel. And so there's this understanding of Paul saying, this is why I'm addressing you to give you that context. Now, let me just make this very clear. Nowhere does it say in the Bible that a wife is to obey their husband. I thought lots of women would go, amen, on that one. <laughs> Husbands, did you hear that? The only thing it's talking about obedience here is in verse 20 when it says that the children obey their parents and the employees obey their uh, employers. Wives are to submit. There's a difference. The second thing is this. This application and instruction of submission is to the wives in a marriage relationship that are following Jesus, that call themselves believers. He's not talking to all women. He's not talking to all wives. He's specifically talking to wives that call themselves followers of Jesus. And the third thing is this. Both husbands and wives are to submit to the Lord and to each other, Ephesians 5.21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Meaning that we submit and act in regards to Christ's work and his watching us. Now the concept of submission is taught in many places, in many contexts throughout the Bible. The understanding of submission does not imply slavery or inferiority. The Greek word for submission here means to arrange oneself under the delegated authority that has been given. We arrange ourselves, we submit, arrange ourselves under the authority of Jesus because that's the way he gave it. In the same way, a wife submits under the authority that God has placed. Not inferiority, but roles. This idea of submission also comes from a military term. That of a, a, a soldier, a foot soldier versus a colonel does not give reference to which one's better. It's a matter of which one's in order. And God does all things decently and in order, 1 Corinthians 14, 40. If we didn't have this kind of chain of command and even in our society, it would be chaos. And so the fact that women is to submit to her husband does not suggest that the man is better than the woman or that the woman is to remain silent or be a doormat for the husband, but that it is an order that God has delegated for the marriage. That the husband is the headship or the leadership in the home. And headship does not equal dictatorship. Another place where lots of women could say amen. It is a leading, uh, it is a loving leadership. Think about Jesus. He's a loving leader. Here's what the Bible teaches. 
In the home, the wife is to submit to the delegated authority of her husband. That's the order. The word submission means that you recognize the authority that God has given you. That's why it says in the end of verse 15, as fitting to the Lord. Another translation says, this is what the Lord has planned for you. A wife submits to the husband out of her allegiance to Christ first. It's order. It's how he set it up. 1 Timothy 2.13 reminds us, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Submission carries with this idea of entrusting oneself to the leadership of another to accomplish a task, to fulfill a purpose. Now, I get to have pre-marriage counseling with a lot of different couples. And we'll get to this place about submission. Ephesians chapter 5. And I get their perspectives and understanding of it. And when we get to the submission part, sometimes this husband just ignorantly smiles. And I just, I just think, buddy, you have no idea. <laughs> and some future wives will say to me, we're not going to use that word submission in the ceremony. Because it comes across like the woman is supposed to be some kind of doormat, supposed to be some kind of beck and call for her husband 24-7, with no sense of individual opinions or expressions, no dreams and no worth outside of their husbands. And let me just say this, if that was my view of submission, as a wife, I wouldn't say yes to being submission in, in the service either. Because that's not what submission is. We must not think of submission as slavery or defeat or suppression. Supr uh, submission is a response of love. When I submit to Christ, it is a response of love. That's Paul's teaching here. When a wife submits to her husband, a wife that's following Jesus, it is a response of love to God and for the benefit of God and a response to her husband. The wife is a role of support, affirmation, encouragement, coming alongside, reminding them that they're not alone, a helpmate. Now, here's what's really cool about this word helpmate. Genesis, God calls Eve the helpmate. Here's what's really interesting. Throughout the Old Testament, God calls himself the helpmate to his people. So this helpmate characteristic is a characteristic of God. That he gives, why? To carry out a task or fulfill a purpose. The husband can carry a lot of responsibility as a provider, protector, whatever. And it is the wife to encourage and come alongside as the helpmate, a characteristic of God, to fulfill that purpose. Now, fellow husbands in the room, I know you're thinking this chapter 3, verse 18 is a great verse. But you really need to look close at verse 19. Because it says, husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Listen to this fact. Throughout the Bible, God says more about the quality of the husband's leadership than he does about the wife's submission. I'm going to read that again because I know sometimes husband can be slow. Throughout the Bible, God says more about the quality of of the husband's leadership than he does about the wife's submission. In a parallel passage that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in chapter 5, Paul devoted twice as many words to the husbands than he did to the wives. Now, Ephesians chapter 25, 
is a powerful statement, a powerful verse. It says that husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. Love your wives in the same way that Christ loves the church. Now what's interesting is this word husband. You ever thought about where it comes from, what it means? I'm glad you asked because I'm going to tell you. The word husband originally meant the one who holds the house together. Another image of the husband is a gardener, one who, who sows seeds and gives space and pulls weeds as a, a kind of this protector of the house, this garden. So Paul's saying, as husbands, our responsibility is to love our wives by holding things together and providing an atmosphere for growth and fruitfulness in our homes. Now, verse 19 says that we're supposed to love our wives. This word love is the deepest word for love. It's the agape love. It's the love of sacrifice. It's the love of unconditional love. It's the love that says, you, not me. How did Christ, how does Christ love his church? He gave his all for his church. Put, put the church's interest above his own. Philippians 2, chapter 2, verses 3 and 5. Listen to this from the perspective of a husband. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. The conclusion then is this, the measure of a man's love for his wife is not seen in gifts or words, but in acts of sacrifice and concern for her spiritual welfare. It is the role of a husband to do all they can do to give their wives the best life they can with God. One author said this of husbands, loving your wife like Christ loved the church then requires repetitive repentance. We know, husbands, that we mess up. That's where husbands could say amen, but I'm not sure if they will. But your wife knows that as well. And so watch. It takes great humility. It takes desperate reliance on God, and it requires a deep understanding of grace. You and I can't be godly husbands without the help, direction, and the grace of God. And the same goes for godly wives. So here's the conclusion. In a marriage, there has to be a foundational commitment to the grace of God, promotion of Jesus, and the glory of God, not in the gratification of self or the glory of self. And so, husbands, I want to challenge you with this. Set an example in speech and conduct that we show ourselves flawed but trustworthy to God, that we refuse to make excuses that we shoulder the burdens and take responsibility and we lean and cry out to God for his help. Now the last words, the last words of Colossians 3.19 says that don't, don't be harsh. None of us are perfect. All of us can say amen to that. When we... When we understand this idea of don't be harsh because we come embittered, this word embittered is only used one other time in the New Testament. It has to do with taste, a bitter taste. And one author said this, Paul is telling husbands not to call their wives honey and then act like vinegar. 
The husband's love for his wife is seen in his sacrifice for her, and the wife's love for her husband is seen in her submission to him. How in the world, how in the world do we do that? Where does our help come from, as David would say? Our help comes from the Lord. Because there are days and times and situations and seasons when loving and submitting is the last thing we want to do in marriage, right? And sometimes it's the same thing when it comes to the Lord. We simply don't want to, don't need to, don't, and we just get this mindset. So where does our help come from? It comes from the Lord. We live lives of surrender. And we will be an example to the world in word and deed. Now Paul continues in verses 20 and 21 of another relationship of parents and children. Verse 20, children, be obedient to your parents in all things. For this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. God's principles for parenting, encouragement, and obedience. Let me ask a question. I know many parents would love to know the answer to this question. Why do children disobey? I mean, why can't they just follow our instructions? Why can't they just listen? Why can't they do what they're told and have a loving attitude about it all the time? Why can't they think through the consequences of their decisions before they make their decisions and in their thinking always have this mindset, I want to do whatever is best to please mom and dad. Why can't kids know that I as a parent have their best interest in mind and that I'm saying no for a reason because I can see further down the road. Why can't kids appreciate all that I have done for them? I mean, they listen to their grandparents much better than they listen to the parents. And I think the grandparents like this. The answer to these questions can be answered when we take a look at ourselves. Because when we are following Jesus, we're not only called Christians and followers of Christ, we're also called children of God. And Paul addresses the relationship between the children and parents in verse 20. Children, children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Now, what's interesting in Colossae, there were children in the homes, and Paul noticed it. There were parents probably looking around, kind of scrambling, going, how do I parent after I became a believer? And we've noticed this in our, in our, uh, our partnership in missionaries. And different cultures teach different things, and all of a sudden, and they become believers, and they want to follow Christ, and all of a sudden, they're like, what's the context now? What do I do? How am I a dad? How am I a mom? And so Paul notices this, and he writes an instruction, uh, instructions to him. And notice this, that children are to obey in all things, not simply in those things that please them. Now, wouldn't that be nice? Just think about that for a second, parent. They obey you in all things. Kids have a duty to listen and carry out the instruction of their parents. The verb here is an ongoing, present tense, habitual, ongoing thing. Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 3. Obedience comes with a promise. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Obedience brings God's pleasure and also comes with God's promise. So keeping this in mind, it is important for parents 
to teach obedience. You can do the research on your own time, but you know that if there's no obedience in the home, it's going to transfer outside of the home with teachers and coaches, employers, and even authorities. They would defy teachers. Many would agree that the breakdown in authority in our society, and in some respects, starts in the home. And because of the ramifications of disobedience and the blessings of obedience, parents must take seriously the task of training children to obey. Now, verse 21 of Colossians 3 gives some awesome responsibility. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. This word uh, fathers can also be interpreted as fathers and mothers. So Paul's message could have been directed to dads, but it certainly applies to both parents. And kids can obey on the outside, but God sees the heart of our obedience. And to illustrate that, I'll give you this story. A five-year-old girl, Jenny, having one of those days with her mom, just kind of those button heads. Anybody ever had one of those with your kids? Just button heads, button heads, button heads. Finally, the mom had enough of the fussing and back and forth. And she said, Jenny, go sit in the corner right now and don't get up till I tell you to. Jenny obeyed by going to sit in the corner. A few minutes went by and Jenny called out to her mom, Mom, I just want you to know that I am sitting down on the outside, but I am so standing up on the inside. Paul made it clear, parents, make it easy for your children to obey you from the inside and out. Now, I'll confess, I want to be the best godly dad that's ever lived. I take seriously the role of being a dad. And if I can talk to the dads just for a minute, listen to this by John Tyson. The role of fatherhood is one of the most overlooked yet crucial roles in our society. The data and our own experience could not be clearer. When a father is present, emotionally healthy, and involved in his child's life, the child has a tremendous advantage in the world to navigate its complexities and challenges with joy and confidence. Dad, see if this resonates with you. I, I want to be outside of Jesus. I want my kids to think I'm the greatest man that's ever lived. I want them to like me as much as I want them to listen to me. I want to laugh with them, cry with them, be their friend, also be there to help them understand God's truth and to walk in that truth with the complexities of life. I want to encourage them, not discourage them. I want to be consistent. I don't want to be selfish with them. I want to make it easy as possible for my kids to trust me and obey me as much as it depends on me. 3 John 1, 4, no greater joy than this is that to hear of my children walking in truth. Because at the end of the day, my ultimate goal as a dad, as a parent, is to encourage them to follow very closely to Jesus and become more and more like him. That's the goal of parenting, to encourage our kids to follow Jesus and become more like him. Now here's the challenge of that. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, says this, In Christ Jesus I became your spiritual father, and then this was the challenge. Therefore I urge you to imitate me. 
parent's role is to model the way of life they want their children to imitate, a dependent, loving relationship with the living God, walking in holiness. I want my boys to say this, I want to live the kind of life my dad lives because he follows so close to Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. One of the greatest parenting tips I have ever heard is this. I must be willing to be what I want my children to become. We all agree in today's culture that being a kid is brutally tough. The complexities, the things that are coming at them, they need a parent to show them truth and to live the truth. Now Paul's last relationship, I'll go through quickly. Verses 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and without partiality. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. God's ways at work, honesty and devotion. Let me ask you, would you consider yourself a good employer? A good employee? What's your standard? Is it sales? Production? What's your standard? Beginning in verse 22, Paul talks talking to the church at Colossae there about masters and slaves. It's the understanding that we have of employers and employees. A Christian servant owes complete obedience to his master as a ministry to the Lord. Colossians 3.24, when you go to work tomorrow, think about this verse. It is the Lord Christ whom I am working for. One author said it this way, a Christian worker ought to be the best worker on the job, maybe not with their hands, but certainly with their heart and with their attitude. I love how the message translates verse 25 at the end. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't cover up bad work. So whether you're a realtor, teacher, doctor, lawyer, doesn't matter. God, Jesus, is your boss. Verses 22 through 25, some principles to think about. Do your best at all times, even when nobody's looking. Worship at your work. I'm not talking about having some kind of sing-along in the break room. I'm talking about as you work, you are worshiping the Lord. That you're thinking about Jesus. Recognize Jesus as your boss. Paul says, work for a raise in the next life. Verse 24 tells us that when we do our best, when we worship at our work, when we recognize Jesus as our boss, we will receive an eternal compensation that far outweighs everything. And then he says, masters, Provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you have a master in heaven too. I want to conclude with this. What needs to change in your life? Anything? 
wives, husbands, parents, kids, employers, employees. Paul says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as to the Lord. Our attitude is to please him in all things, in all relationships. As you can tell this morning, we're going to partake of communion. Seth and the team are going to come. They're going to play. Communion is about remembering and celebrating. Communion is about remembering Jesus, the example, the perfect example in all these relationships. Thank you for this passage. I know it comes with a little bit of sensitivity. I know it comes with a little bit of uh, uh, leaning in. Maybe some things that are uncomfortable. Maybe some things that are challenging. But God, your word is there for a reason. And it's to help us be more like Jesus. And so God, I pray this morning, as you know, every need that is in this room. That scripture says every hair of our head is numbered. You know what every person needs. This is your word. It's your spirit. Help us, we pray. Prepare our hearts for communion. Thank you for your death on the cross, the opportunity of forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. You come as Seth and the team plays.